Okay, well, here's a, a subject I hope you'll find interesting. The four last things, and in parentheses there on your notes it says, and purgatory as well. There are four last things. They're death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Purgatory is not one of the four last things. But it's in the general extended family. So I throw it in as well, because it's interesting. Okay, uh, You will face absolutely and definitively three of the four last things. Which three is up to you, okay? It's up to you. But let's talk about this for a second. And it's important to note, you know, I was just talking to a man the other day who was dying. Unfortunately, in the last couple weeks, a plethora of people who were dying. So I went over to this, this man's house and we got to talking. And he might not have even survived today, I don't know. But last week, he was conversant. And he's like, I want to know for certain what do we know about what lies beyond the grave? Tell me for sure. And what I told him is basically what I'm about to tell you here. There are some things that we do know for sure, for absolute for sure, okay? What we don't know way completely outstrips what we do know, but what we do know is still real. Uh, I think I might have used the image of, ever use the image of the two unborn speaking to each other? I, I, I use images and I repeat images and I hate to repeat myself, but I always do. So imagine two unborns, imagine if they could have a conversation. They can't, but just imagine. And they're trying to describe what life's going to be like after they're born. They could probably reason to, you know, the fact they've got feet means they're going to use these things, maybe they're going to stand on these things, and they've got ears, and you know, they're going to, there's something called sound, and they've got eyes, and there's something called sight. And they'd be right about all these things. But the actual experience of that way outstrips anything they could possibly understand from that point of view. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of my favorites, <clears throat> wrote about God like nobody's business. We're still studying and digesting stuff he wrote, and it's all true. It's all true. But at the moments before he died, he had a direct vision of God. And after he had that vision, he didn't write another word. Not another word. And they said, You've got to finish your works. His works are still half finished, some of them, unfinished. Got to finish your works. Uh, um, Aquinas, you have to finish. People are hanging on your words. And he goes, compared with what I've seen, all that I've written is as so much straw. That's what he said. Now, it doesn't mean that he negates, he didn't go burn his books. But, so, what we're going to say is true. But I think that we can fall into an error sometimes. Talking about the things of God, we can fall into this error of thinking that We've got God by the tail, that we've got it all figured out. Uh, whereas it's, you know, you ever heard of the story of the seven blind men standing around the elephant? And one grabs the tail and he goes, well, I know what this elephant like. He's sort of like a great big rope. And then he's grabbing the tusk. And he goes, no, 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 he's more like a tree trunk. You know, and the other's grabbing the, 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 the foot. No, no, it's more like the great big bass drum. And the other is holding onto the side. No, he's more like, you know, like leather. Well, they're all right. Every last one of them is right. So our knowledge of God is sort of like that. So we're going to talk about these things. When you're checking out, uh, maybe you'll read my notes again, okay? Um, so let's take a look at this. First of all, death. It's really very simple. I've been over this before. It's very simple. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. That's all it is. It is not the annihilation of yourself. I refer back to the man I was talking to just last week. And I said, death is life's most important event. That's what it is. It's change. 
That's all it is. It's a change, not an end. Uh, you've been, you are, by the way, your body and your soul. You are not a ghost driving a body. In our own time, this is one of our great errors. You know, like when you start talking about people, they, they think I was a man born in a woman's body or a woman born in... No, actually, your body is you. If you got a male body, you're a guy. If you got a female body, you're a girl. And that's just the way things are. Uh, it's reality. And nobody can change that. It might get us into trouble someday, but it's the truth. You are your body, and death is not a natural state. Okay, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here in your notes, but someday there will be a resurrection of the body because God made you to be both a body and a soul. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was not a ghost. You know the stories from the Bible, right? He ate and he drank and you could you know, you could reach out and touch him and, and he was real. And, it, and he, gives us the, he gives us the example of what it's going to be like for us. Somehow, someday, there's going to be a resurrection of the body. And by the way, that is, an, that is a belief that predates Christianity. You know the Jews believe that too? You ever been to Jerusalem? Anybody ever been to Jerusalem? Go to Jerusalem one of these days and uh, right across from... I'm getting a, I've got my little stories and I really go off track and I hope, I hope you find this interesting. But there's a gate in Jerusalem called the Golden Gate. And that's where the Messiah is supposed to pass through when he enters the city of Jerusalem one day. By the way, guess which gate Jesus passed through when they waved palms in the palm branches on Palm Sunday? He went through the Golden Gate. You'll go to Jerusalem someday and there's a great big bricked up gate. That's the Golden Gate. Who bricked it up? The Muslims. <laughs> they bricked it up. Nobody's ever passing through, the, but it's still there. And on the side of the hill, the great big side of the hill overlooking the Golden Gate is a great big Jewish cemetery because they want to be there to rise when the Messiah passes through the Golden Gate. So they, we, the, the resurrection of the body is something actually that predates Christianity. And lo and behold, it happened to our Lord. So it's not a natural state. As I have here in your notes, it was no part of your Heavenly Father's plan. You find it revolting. You find it evil. You find it unconscionable, unacceptable. When you go to a funeral, your tears are perfectly justified. It wasn't ever meant to be. So, you know, please don't ever listen too carefully when somebody says, well, you know, this is God's will. It's God's permissive will in the sense that he allows everything to happen, but it's God's will like Hiroshima was God's will, right? It's God's will like Nagasaki was God's will. He let it happen, but this wasn't what, the, what he planned. Uh, it was no part of your Heavenly Father's plan from the beginning. Had it not been for sin, it never would have occurred. Um, uh, but it's a separation of the soul from the body. And the two of them, the two of them uh, exist together. Now the body, as I've mentioned, just to reiterate, what's the soul? Well, I like to look at it this way. Go to a funeral home, look in the casket, and ask what's missing. That's the soul. The soul is what's missing. Right now, your soul is your memory, it's your personality, it's your love. I'm sorry to say it's also your hate. It's your fear, it's your cowardice, it's your courage. It's everything about you that isn't a dead corpse. That's your soul. I would like to say it's the real you. That lives. That lives on. There was a... Uh, guy pumping gas once in New Jersey and um, the, he was talking with the guy who was getting somehow they got into a theological discussion and you get a lot of wisdom from people working you know like blue collar jobs and he was talking about death and what happens after death and the guy pumping gas said if the me that's there then that is to say after death doesn't remember the me that's here now it's not going to do the me that's here now a whole lot of good so what's waiting for you after it's the real you it, it, you're going to recognize at the moment of your death that, uh, that, that 
really truly who you are. Um, that, that, that's all it is, the separation of the soul from the body. Okay? The body dissolves, the soul lives on. The soul did not get its life from the body, it got its life from God. Uh, and that's why it continues. And that's why the soul is immortal. Okay? Um, now, there's one thing I like to make really clear, and that is we do not believe in reincarnation. I've had so many people say this over the years. Um, I don't know how it got into people's minds, maybe through Hinduism. Uh, there's no reincarnation. There's no past life regression. You haven't lived in a past life. Your life began at the moment of your conception, uh, and that's you, okay, before which there was no you. So, so please understand this. We go through this life only once, uh, and that's why our lives are incalculably precious. You're not going to get today back ever again. While we live, um, you're being given a time of grace. God's life in your soul. You're being given a time of mercy. Okay. Um, I have no idea when it ends for people, why it ends for people when it ends, but at somewhere along the line, God in his infinite knowledge and infinite goodness looks at each soul and says, okay, time's up. Uh, you've made your choice. And unfortunately, or fortunately, we, we do make a choice. You have a free will here. You really do. You're absolutely free and sovereign. You can do anything you wish. You can't choose any consequences of anything you wish, but you can do anything you wish. And after that, there are consequences. And that gets to our next little subject, which is judgment, all right? Now, by the time we die, we have decided who we are. And I hope this, this begins to make sense, okay? Um, your soul, as I've said, lives on. After death, uh, you could say, what is judgment? Well, you know, if you watch a movie, or if you watch a, if you heard practical musings that people, they imagine there's some sort of a courtroom scene, right? With a judge and a, a great Peter. big, <laughs> Peter's up there and he's got a great big stack of papers and he's going through them and well, you did this, but you know, he also gave some money, food to the poor, so here will and you know, in the end, it's like a scale and if one weighs more than the other. I want to tell you that uh, based on what we believe, that's not judgment. Whatever it is, it's, an, it's instantaneous. It's who you are. Very, very simply. I'm going to jump way ahead to your notes here. St. Catherine of Siena, she says, at the moment of judgment, the soul rushes to where you best fit in. You know who you are and you know where you belong. It's like looking in a mirror. There's no doubting it. You're like, yep, that's me. You've ever had a, you've, we have moments like this all our lives. You ever heard it said that you're a mystery uh, to this world, um, to, to, to no one except yourself? Everybody else knows the real you. But we live in an illusion world. Well, the moment of judgment is when we look in the mirror, so to say, of the soul and we realize who we really are. We have that experience. You ever had the experience where you suddenly realize you actually have been an incredible jerk? You ever had the experience where somebody comes and tells you that you've actually done a great deal of good? They're little mini judgments, okay? Little mini judgments. So at the moment of death, you rush to where you belong. You go where you fit and you know it. St. Augustine put it this way, Amor meus... Pondus meum, my love is my weight. That is to say, you're going to fall like a weight to where you belong, right? Uh, and it's based on what you've done with your soul. Um, give you a little uh, um, uh, 
phenomenological uh, th uh, philosophy here. A thing does in accordance with what it is. So wood is nice and strong because that's its nature. And air is airy because that's its nature. You do right now, as you, as you breathe, you are acting in accordance with who you are. If you are a loving person, you will act like it. If you are a selfish person, you will act like it. If you're a deceptive person, you will act like it. All of us act out of our nature. Make sense? Okay. It's just the moment of judgment that just kind of becomes revealed, right? Um, you've chosen who you are. You've chosen it. Remember I said to you last week, if you lie and you lie and you lie again, I have to call you what you've, be you've chosen to become a liar. Okay. At the moment of judgment, it's revealed, but that's who we've become. Um, uh, it's, it's either good or bad. And as we live, we either choose what's true and good in spite of what we want, or we choose what we want in spite of what's true and good. Uh, I don't think there's anybody who will choose selfishness because they think it's good. They might try to lie to themselves or lie to others. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in The Simpsons. You ever watch The Simpsons? There's, there's like there was this one little episode my mind is filled with Simpsons quotes because there are philosophers the people who write that and, and Homer throws litter out the window and Lisa have you ever seen The Simpsons she's the little environmentalist of the show Dad why do you do that you know what Homer says because it's easier duh <laughs> that's why we do what we do not because it's right because it's easy or we do what's right be, despite of the fact that it's hard and we live our lives doing that right um now, we'd love it if there was no judgment. A lot of people like to live under the illusion that there is no judgment. Half the reason that John Lennon's song, Imagine, was so popular was because implied in the song is that there's no right, there's no wrong. And if there's no right and there's no wrong, then sky's the limit, man. Let's all go have as much fun as we can right now, no matter how many people it hurts. I become my own god. All right? But here's the thing. There are real rights and wrongs, and there are real consequences. We can't just fade away. No matter what happens, there's always consequences. And here's the example I give you in your notes. Uh, if you owe me a thousand bucks, and I say don't worry about it, guess what? It just cost me a thousand bucks to tell you that. Right? If I say you have to pay me back, well, that's because I don't have the thousand bucks. But either way, not, neither of us can pretend like the debt isn't real. If you don't pay it, I have to pay it. And if I don't pay it, you have to pay it. There's a debt, in a sense, for every wrong action that, that's ever been taken, that's ever taken place. I know this sounds really frightening, but for every so much as stray, idle thought that you've ever had in your life, there's going to be a reckoning. Now, here's the good news. Our Lord's already paid it. I have a little quote here for you. Here's why Jesus is our only hope, as we go back to the class on Christ. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. He's the only infinite one. He's the only one who can possibly pay the infinite debt. He's already paid it, all right? And that's why your judgment is based on your likeness to Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to what we said about grace, all right? Grace is God's life in your soul. Uh, Jesus Christ is every good quality you could possibly imagine. That's what grace means. That's what God's life means. 
if it's honorable, if it's decent, if it's virtuous, if it's admirable, if it's courageous, if it's heroic, if it's sacrificial, if it's loving, uh, if it brings a tear to your eye, just the very thought of how deeply good it is, that's who Jesus is, but a thousand times more than you could ever possibly imagine. That's the standard of goodness. That's what grace is. That's what judgment is based on. You know the you know Saint Michael the Archangel? He's mentioned in the book of Daniel, he's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Saint Michael the Archangel, the word Michael means like God. And in the book of Revelation it says that you know that Saint Michael the Archangel goes about all the land of the living and he asks, which one of these is like God? Who's like God? Who's that's the moment of judgment. Who's like God? Are you like God? So that's why I say you it's based on your likeness to Christ. Now there's an error that thinks that all you have to do is just kind of mentally accept this and that you're covered. That is not true. You have to cooperate. Because remember what I said? You act in accordance with who you are. If you really have, if you really are a person who's consumed with the grace of Christ, you're going to act like it. Right? You're going to act like it. So when, you're, when, when, when there's a judgment, is it based on what you do or is it based on what you believe? Which? The answer is actually both. Because consider this. You ever heard somebody say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person? We've all heard that, right? You ever stop to consider how, mu- how little sense that makes? Think about this for a moment. What is goodness? How can you be a good person? Unless your goodness is based on good ideas. Um, if your ideas are wrong, I mean, you know, we can go back to the cliched example of Hitler and the Nazis. But when I'm, they're so filled with so many great examples. Hermann Goering, the night before he committed suicide, he said, 50 years from today, there will be statues erected in my honor all across Germany. He clearly didn't think he had bad ideas, but I don't think anybody would say he was a good person. Okay. Um, um, so if you are filled with the Lord's grace, you're going to act like it. If I could say salvation is based on one thing, I'd say it's based on grace. You don't earn it, right? You don't go up to God, and remember I told you in our class, if you, had, if you died tonight and God asked you, why should you get into heaven, what would your answer be? You do not say, because I was such a good person. Because right? God, you, you don't earn heaven. Grace alone makes your soul worthy of God, because grace is God's life in your soul. Right? However, this is what it, if you have it, you will display it. There's no such thing as somebody whose life is filled with grace and they're also a selfish SOB. It just doesn't exist. That means their life is, dep- is depriving of grace. All right? uh, I've got an image for you that I like to, uh, to, look, to look at, uh, to, to consider. Um, imagine somebody who's drowning at sea. Okay? I don't think I've used this example in this class before. Drowning at sea. And they cry out and there's a passing boat. And they cry out and they say, help me, help me, I'm drowning. And they throw them a life preserver. And the guy hangs on to the life preserver for his dear life, and they haul him all the way up the side of the boat. And he's inside the boat now. He looks up and he says, thank you, you saved me. Okay. You could say that the life preserver is Jesus Christ. The voice that says, grab the rope, is the voice of the Holy Spirit. But you have to actually hang on to the life preserver. It doesn't do you any good. Right? So what you do does matter. That's very important to understand. If grace is present, it expresses itself in works. So that's, that's an important thing to understand about the divine judgment. Um, there's, there's, there's an error, and it was introduced by, by Calvin, that uh, you know, if you just have the right intellectual idea, you can go sin all you want. 
that's just not true. If you're sinning all you want, you don't have God's grace. Right. Um, Jesus has told us that, and the very specifically, that it will express itself in what you've done to those who are most needy. There's a caveat I'd like to throw out on that, and that is, it's not just the materially needy. If you meet somebody in your life who's a real jerk, chances are something very, very bad happened to them somewhere along the line. Most people are doing the very best they can in life. The, the neediest, the poorest, the weakest, these are often the people who are the most difficult. I mean, one of the greatest works of mercy is to show patience to people who are very hard to, to, to be with, to bear wrongs patiently. But, um, you know, he said, whatsoever you did to the least of my brethren, that's what you did to me. That's how Jesus describes the divine judgment. I'm just trying to give you the prelude to this. St. Augustine, one of my favorite saints, has this comment for you. He'll turn to those on his left and he said, I placed my poor little ones on earth for you. I, as their head, was seated in heaven at the right hand of my father. But on earth, my people were suffering. If you gave anything to them, what you gave reached me. Would that you had known that my little ones were in need when I placed them on earth for you and appointed them your stewards to bring your good works into my treasury, but... You've placed nothing in their hands, therefore you have found nothing in my presence. And that's kind of the reason why I I prefaced that with all that I said was if I just said that, it makes it sound like you can earn your salvation by your good works. If you're full of the Lord, you'll act like the Lord. That's what I want to say, all right? As I already said, it's infinitely simple. At the moment, you'll you'll have this revealed to you. Um, And you'll either go immediately into, I'm sorry to say, damnation, or the blessedness of heaven, or there will be some kind of a purification. We'll get to that in just a second. Now, this is what's interesting. There's actually going to be two judgments. They won't be different. They'll be the same. But at the moment you die, there is, as I described, this instant, right? But the scriptures tell us that there's going to be a great big general one at the end of all time. And somehow there will be. Everything that has ever been done will be made known. You want to know who killed JFK? You're going to find out. All right? uh, were there ever weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? We're going to find out. Um, you know, well, what do they really say behind closed doors? You're going to find out. The full ramifications of every good thing and every bad thing you've ever done are going to be revealed. You know how there's ripple effects to bad actions? There's ripple effects to good actions too. It's all going to be made known. Somehow there will be a... a It'll also all be taken in... This is what our Lord means when he says, what you've done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Right? Um, it'll be instantaneous. If you've done bad, please take heart. If you're in God's good grace, you'll boast of his mercy that he forgave you even of this, that, and the other thing. Right? So you'll turn your praise to the Lord in spite of turning in shame to yourself. So it's actually not going to be all that bad. Okay, so now let's talk about, uh, let's, let's move on to, to, to one, of the, one of the last things, heaven, which is impossible to describe, right? But all I can do is give you the basics. Those who die in God's grace, perfectly purified from all sin and from all attachment to sin. That is to say, uh, I, I wish I could sin Zach Nabbit, if it wasn't for God looking over my shoulder, I certainly would. That's an attachment to sin. That's a defect. That's a fault. All right. That's not trusting and loving God completely. 
if you're perfectly purified from all sin and all attachment to sin and alive with God's grace, there's nothing keeping you between yourself and God. That's what heaven is, all right? And this is seeing God face to face. That's the one thing in heaven that people don't necessarily appreciate or understand. You know what the essence of heaven is? Being in God's presence. Seeing God face to face. We'll go back to my favorite philosophical program, The Simpsons. Right? You ever seen that there's an episode of The Simpsons where they, see, they show Protestant, Catholic, Protestant heaven and Catholic heaven? You ever seen this before? It's really funny. They go up to Protestant heaven and it's a bunch of people you know, wearing polo shirts and playing croquet. It's like a, basically a great big country club. They go to Catholic heaven and it's a bunch of people hitting pinatas and you know, um, uh, doing river dance from, from like the Irish. And, uh, all, and it's, it's cliched, but um, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but, um, but, what, but what is heaven? It's impossible to understand. C.S. Lewis said this in a book called The Great Divorce. Hitherto you have experienced truth only with your abstract intellect. I will bring you to a place where you can taste it like honey. Be embraced by it like a bridegroom. Your thirst will be quenched. I remember why I said it. It's because when most people envision heaven, they think of, well, I'm going to get to see my friends again, I'm going to get to see my family again, there won't be any mosquitoes, uh, my favorite team always wins, the cowboys always lose, sorry, um, etc. Right. Um, but everybody describes heaven in this, in this worldly terms. And nobody realizes the number one thing that makes heaven heaven is God. The one thing your soul is longing and yearning for. Take God away and you got hell. Honestly, all right? Um, but this is, this, this is what, God, the possession of God in a perfect relationship is what makes heaven, heaven. Because you were made for God. A state of absolute, complete, supreme fulfillment of every longing. Perfect joy, perfect satisfaction of every longing. Occasionally, I had a, I, occasionally I find children, they'll be like, well, if my dog's not in heaven, I don't want to go. And we've all heard of the movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, but I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Dogs are dogs, and when they're gone, they're gone. Um, because let's be consistent. If there's a dog heaven, <coughs> then there's a heaven for every other thing. Now, there's a mosquito heaven. I personally think that if there's a mosquito heaven, it's the same place as human hell. <laughs> the two could interact absolutely perfectly. But, I mean, what, how far do you want to push this, right? Is there also a Tyrannosaurus Rex heaven? I mean, how far do you want to push this? Is there a beetle heaven? Is there a, a mosquito heaven? Et cetera. So, no. Um, uh, but everything that's good about your pet dog is somehow present in heaven. I have no idea how, but nothing is lacking. Absolutely nothing is lacking. You have to kind of just kind of take that as an idea. I went to a woman's house once. She asked for an emergency call because her dog died. It was hard to keep a straight face, but, you know, um, I had to tell her that everything good about her dog is, is in heaven, I promise. And there's not one good thing about her dog that's not going to be part of heaven, even if the dog isn't there. Um, no puffy clouds, no angels. You want to know why they uh, describe heaven as heaven's streets of gold? It's because gold never tarnishes. It's eternal. You can bury the pharaohs of Egypt uh, 4,000 years ago in gold open up their coffin today it looks just like the day you buried them it never tarnishes it was an image of heaven it was the eternity of heaven All right. um, but uh, you know especially when things are going well in this life haven't you experienced that something is missing something is lacking let me give you a little thought experiment Take, think of the most happiest moment of your life happiest moment of your life personally 
the happiest moment in my life was probably when I was four or five years old, probably on a Christmas Eve, the anticipation of it. Now, think about that happy moment. Multiply it out by a billion years. Can you, can you stand it? Can you endure it? Well, no, it was fine for a moment, but not forever. Okay? Um, uh, nothing in this world is ever good enough to be extended out to forever. That's why people think heaven's going to be boring. That's why you have to understand that the possession of God is what makes heaven heaven, right? As St. Paul says, eye has not seen it, ear has not heard it. It's not so much as dawned on your mind what this is going to be. But I can give you an image, okay? Something of an image. I like to say heaven is eight things. It's knowing others and it's being known by others. We want that. It's loving others and it's being loved by others. All of this perfectly. It's knowing God and it's being known by God. It's loving God and it's being loved by God. All perfectly. Ever wondered why people always want to be famous? I mean, not everybody. I don't. I love being anonymous. But, you know, talk about little kids. I mean, if I was famous, I'd be hell, really. I'd hate it. Um, They talk about little kids and they dream of being famous someday. I think basically the reason is they want people to know them and they want people to love them. That's what we all want. That's part of heaven. You will be known and you will be loved perfectly by everybody. Okay? Um, um, uh, and, 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 and the fact that other people are involved is going to make it all the better. You go back to the 50s. You know what they used to worry about in the 50s? They worried that television would destroy cinema. If you're interested to know about the history of television, they were afraid that when they come up with the television, it will destroy the experience of going to the movies. Movies, of course, never were destroyed. Part of the reason why is because there's something about gathering together with other people. We like to laugh together. We like to cry together. We like to be afraid together. We like to do everything together. Um, You know, you go to a football game and the crowd loves to cheer together. We love to share the moment, share the joy. Heaven's going to kind of be like, in some way, being part of a great big crowd at a stadium. And we're all going to cheer at the same things. I have no idea how. But somehow the fact that other people are there makes it all the better. Okay? Um, another important thing, it's not identical for everybody. I'm really sorry to burst your bubble. Um, there's this egalitarian strain in modern American thought that thinks that, well, it's got to be equal. Well, I mean, I have put up with I-95. I've put up with broken air conditioners. But some people put up with Auschwitz, right? Some people, some people put up with the aftermath of Hiroshima. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there, there's people that share their lunch with a stranger, and then there's Mother Teresa. I mean, and the capacity for enjoying the depth of what God is is what makes it greater or lesser. Okay? I mean, I can go to an opera, and I actually appreciate it. But I don't appreciate it any like where near somebody who studied opera would appreciate it. Um, you could say that heaven might be sort of like opera. Heaven for one person and hell for somebody else. Okay. But um, in fact, there, that this, I, this is not what we believe, but I'm just long dovetailing off that idea. There's some people who believe that heaven and hell is the same place. God is there. For some people it's heaven. For other people it's hell. <laughs> but I don't want to get too far afield. Um, okay, but we call this the beatific vision, to, to be with the Lord, to see the Lord, this complete fulfillment. Okay, now, uh, I believe I've covered everything. Now let's talk about the far more interesting place, hell. Far more interesting. And we're no more capable of thinking about hell than we're capable of thinking about heaven. Uh, Can anybody be so bad that they deserve to be napalmed for all eternity? I mean, forever. And let's let's make no two two mistakes about this. You can't get out, all right? 
You go to hell, it's forever. There's no getting out later. People think, well, you need to go to heaven, but then people realize, people go to hell and then they realize they've been wrong and God will bring everybody into heaven. Sorry, folks, okay? Jesus said, the Son of Man will send his angels and he will collect out of the kingdom all causers of sin and all evildoers. And he will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the kingdom of the, like the sun in the kingdom of their fathers. Let everyone who has ears hear. I don't have the courage to say that. All right? But somebody who knows better than I do tells me that some people don't make it. All right? Now let's just think about this. How can anybody be so bad as to deserve to be napalmed for all eternity? Well, this is the image I like to give people to think of this. How can anybody be so good as to be rewarded for all eternity? Is that fair? I mean, if you're, you, you like the idea of nobody ever says, well, I don't deserve this, this is too good. They only say, I don't deserve this, this is too bad. Well, think about, the image that I like to use is this. Pretend like you won the lottery. Let's pretend like you won the lottery and the jackpot's $100 million. And let's just further pretend that the only proof, because I've never won the lottery before, that you've won the lot. the only proof is your winning ticket. Now let's pretend like you lose the winning ticket. What'd you lose? You just lost 100 million bucks. Now what kind of a punishment is that for losing a piece of paper? Is that fair? No. But it wasn't really about the fact that you lost a piece of paper. It's about what hung in the balance. The reason why heaven is heaven is the same reason why hell is hell. It's because God or losing God is what hangs in the balance. Hell is nothing but the absence of God. That's all it is. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so bad until you realize that lakes of burning sulfur and all these, basically the complete torment of your being because all that you've ever longed for has been denied you forever. All love, all truth has been denied you forever is what makes it hell. But the absence of God is what makes it hell. Okay? Um, it, so it's not so much like, you know, you deserve this, so you're going to, it's that God was offered to you and you lost it. Uh, and, and you lost it. That's what makes it hell. Now, you want to understand this. Let's approach this uh, the same way that you could approach anything else, as a mystery of human freedom. People will often say, why does God make people to send them to hell? God makes nobody to send them to hell. God, now, I remember, we, I think we raised up the question of little baby Hitler in, in past classes. He, he was probably meant to be something really great. You've heard that he wanted to go to art school, right? You ever seen Hitler's art? He's not an artist. He's a great technical drawer. Now, he could have worked for an architecture firm, but he has zero artistic expression. Like he, lots of right angles, and just like you'd expect from a Nazi. Okay, but um, <laughs> but but you get the point. Maybe he would have been a great architectural drafter. Maybe he could have been a very good person. He's the one who turned himself into a monster, and he did it by his own will. So consider the capacity of man to choose wrongly, to love what your own will is. Nobody begins by hating God. Nobody begins what they begin by want. They begin by wanting their own will too much, and we all know what that feels like. Here's one of my favorite little um, stories. Okay, this comes from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite thinkers. The characteristic of the lost souls is their rejection of everything that is not themselves. They try to turn everything they meet, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar in your life, they try to turn everything they meet into a province or appendage of the self. They don't have relationships, they have transactions, right? The taste for the other, the very capacity of, joy and of enjoying good, is quenched in them insofar 
except insofar as the body still draws them into some rudimentary contact with the outer world. Death removes this last contact. They have their wish to lie wholly in the self and to make the best of whatever they find there. And what they find there is hell. In the long run, all those who object to the doctrine of hell are themselves asking a question. What do you want God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? Give them a fresh start? Soothing, smoothing over every difficulty and offering them every miraculous help? He's already done it at Calvary. What are you asking God to do to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. What are you asking God to do to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's exactly what he does. Does that make sense? Okay. The soul has chosen themselves, self-sufficiency, and what they've discovered is that they're not self-sufficient. Whether you know it or not, your hope is God, your nourishment is God, your love is God, your life is God, your peace is God, and God they will not have. And God says, okay, you won't say thy will be done with your life, then I will say to you, thy will be done. And away they go. All right. So nobody is condemned against their will. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, those who absolutely refuse to keep his commandments and stubborn, freely willed, unrepented, serious sin, that's the rejection of God. All right? And once again, let me make this clear. I didn't say this, but it is definitive, it is eternal, and it is irreversible. And here's the best image that I can give you for it. Anger. St. Catherine of Siena said that anger is the best image for hell on earth. So let me think, so think about anger for a moment. You've ever been furious with somebody? And when someone, when you are furious with someone, how do you feel when someone comes up to you and says, oh, why don't you just kiss and make up? It may dig in your heels even more. Such is the damned soul. They're, it's like they're, it, the closest thing you can think of on earth is fury. They absolutely furiously refuse. Okay, that's what you want. It's like an eternal temper tantrum. And you can just, you know, I hope I've made this clear. Um, you know, the idea that there's anything good about it or um, uh, uh, fun about it, um, um, absolutely false. All right. For on a lighter note, this is my favorite little uh, quotations here from the autobiography of Christopher Hollis. He says, I, st I think I still believe in purgatory, but I'm more doubtful about hell. The only reason why I'm hesitant about complete repudiation is the fact that there are some strange and violent threats in the Gospels, of which, at any rate, the apparent meaning is that we cannot be wholly indifferent to the threats of what is called in the Mass final damnation. Whoever has the arranging of the Last Judgment, it will not be me. So it is of little importance what I may think of it. My friend, Mr. Schmidt Ingebretson, was the chairman of the religious committee of the Norwegian government. It fell to him to give advice to the king as to what doctrine the king, as head of the state Lutheran church, should pronounce about hell. His natural instinct was to be liberal. But then he reflected on the possibility that if he denied all possibility of damnation, quote, my constituents, they will go to the last judgment and they will say, Mr. Schmidt Ingerbretson said it would be all right. And almighty God, he will say, who the hell is Schmidt Ingerbretson? <laughs> and I will be a bloody fool. All right. So, um, as I said, this is the separation of the soul from God. It's what's called the pain of loss. Um, uh, uh, it's the place where love can't exist. And the experience of it, you know, again, all your life there's hovered over you in eternal ecstasy just beyond your grasp. The day is coming when you will awake to find beyond all hope that you've attained it or else that it was within your grasp. 
and that you've lost it forever. The church never says anybody's in hell. That is to say, they know, say no specific soul is there. We do canonize saints. We'll get to that in future. We say this soul is in heaven, and we actually teach it. We do not say, not even Judas Iscariot, we say, and Jesus himself did everything possible to basically uncanonize Judas Iscariot. He said of Judas Iscariot, better for him that he'd never been born, which is not a good thing for Jesus to say of you. Um, but we never actually say any, we do say there's people there. I mean, you've heard this said, well, you have to believe there's hell, but you don't have to believe anybody's there. The scriptures have told, made it very clear that people are there. Well, if there's anybody there, it's only Hitler. Well, no, I'm sorry to say some people don't make it. Um, it's a fool, foolish error to think that nobody's there. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate's wide that leads to destruction, and the way is easy, and those who choose to follow it are many. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to eternal life, and how few they are who find it. Now, lastly, the last, which not a one of the four last things, my favorite place, purgatory, all right? My favorite place. Your top of your notes, it says, purgatory is the laundromat of the soul. And what I'd like to help you to understand about purgatory is, if you don't believe in purgatory, please understand it's already going on. Not the post-death state of purgatory, but the idea that you're being purified. Every frustration, every red light, every hangnail, every bad hair day, uh, every irritating celebrity or politician, whoever it might be, um, every time, you know, you can any frustration, any hardship, any... Tr You've got a choice to make. You either choose to still believe in God, at which case you're made more pure by that. Your faith is better, your soul is more pure, or you dig in your heels and clench your fist, in which case you're getting worse, not better. Um, you can make your soul, cooperate with making your soul more Christ-like right now, and that purgation hurts. The only thing I'm telling you about purgatory is that work is not necessarily finished at the hour of death. And I hope that makes sense. Here's my best, best summation of purgatory for you. If your faults could get into heaven with you, then heaven wouldn't be heaven. Heaven is a place of perfect love. Your faults can't get in. All right? It is possible. It is possible in this life to rid yourself of everything, to, to love God perfectly and to love everything else in this world because of him. I could say this very, very simply. The soul that goes straight to heaven, obviously alive with God's grace, is the soul that loves God and everything in this earth because of God in its proper place. That's a perfect soul. Doesn't mean you don't love something else. Doesn't mean you don't love a cold beer on a hot day or a cool breeze on a hot day or a warm blanket when you're shivering cold. It just means that when you experience these things, it's like the first thought that comes to your mind is how good God is for making cold beer. I can think that thought. It's perfectly legit. But purgatory, it's not an eternal place. It's a temporary place. A temporary state of purification. They're alive with God's grace. They can't go to hell. They're all going to heaven, every last one of them. They can't go to hell. They're just still clinging to sin. And therefore not really worthy of perfect union with God. I gave you the example of the woman whose husband wouldn't put the shoes away. Somewhere out there, she's listening to this recording, and she's like, that priest, he's been making my story, his example for the last 20 years. So I'm sorry, I apologize to her for this, but the woman whose husband wouldn't put her, her shoes away in the closet, their marriage will never be perfect until he puts his shoes away. Okay? Your love for God will never be perfect as long as you're clinging to any sin. Right? And we, we, can, we can undo that.
We don't want this to be the case. We all want to make the full glory of heaven by the skin of our teeth. Back in the seminary, we used to have A to F grades. A to F. You either got an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F. And if you got an A by the skin of your teeth, you got the full credit just like you got in 100%. And if you managed to squeak into 83, you got the full B just like you got in a 92. And then, the next year, the seminary changed their policy. They added pluses and minuses to every letter grade. Suddenly, an A was not... You could get an A plus or an A minus. What do you think the seminary... Do you think we liked that or do you think we didn't like that? We didn't like that, right? We liked full credit by the skin of our teeth. I'm sorry to say that just in reality, all right? You can't schlep your way into heaven. Purgatory, again, predates Christianity. It was a belief we inherited. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Got some quotes there from your, from your scriptures. And I'd like to say that the truth of it, it's a plain matter of experience. I'm fully conscious of sins that I'm not really sorry for. I'd commit them again if I got the chance, right? If the opportunity would just arise, I haven't fully had that encounter with Christ. I haven't fully convinced myself that it's not good. Right? Sin always hurts. Sin never helps. There's mortal sins that, and I'm sorry for them, but yeah, I don't know. If you put me back in that same place in that same time, that same hour a day, I'd probably do it again. That's the state in which many people live. That's the state in which many people die. And again, I hope I've made it clear it's not a trifle. It's not a trifle. Why can't God overlook our trifles? Because it's not a trifle. Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman. The endeavor of most Christians is not to do the will of the Heavenly Father, but to do what their own will is, without displeasing God too much. Isn't that the truth? Okay. Um, here's the big objection to it. Didn't Jesus die for everything? Yes, he did. Didn't Jesus give everything we need on the cross? Yes, he did. But just because he's offering doesn't mean you're taken. I hope you know it quite well that it's very possible to come up to God and walk away with a partial plate. I mean, every time I say Mass, I look out across the congregation, and every soul in the entire place is receiving a different amount of grace. And it depends on them. It's all on offer. But some people have just had a death in the family, and they're drinking in deeply. Other people, they can't wait for it to leave, and they even leave before Mass is over, and they're not getting that much out of it. You ever wonder why it is that people can go to Mass after Mass, say prayer after prayer, and they still live a deeply sinful life? Well, this is why. You could, you could say, you know, everybody, you know everybody know about Cardinal McCarrick and all of his crimes? No, I don't want to scandalize you, but it was all over the news last summer. Um, how could he say all those prayers? How could he say all those Masses? How could he wear a cross around his neck and still commit all those crimes? Same reason there's a purgatory. You could say, well, geez, didn't Jesus offer everything on the cross? Yeah, sure he did. Did, 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 he, did this guy take it? Nope. That's the same reason there's a purgatory. There's nothing lacking in Jesus, but there's lots lacking in you and me. Okay? We happen to like our faults. Okay? We, 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 we cling to them. Um, the one thing I think is important to understand is that purgatory is a better place than this life. It, yes, it's a place of suffering. The undoing of sin is the experience of regret. Um... But everybody in purgatory knows what heaven is because they've seen God. They know they're going to get in. Uh, it's like they're on the waiting list. Imagine every, you're on the waiting list for whatever it is that you want. Not everybody goes to college, but just imagine you're on the waiting list for your favorite college and you're going to get in. You just have to wait long enough. That's what purgatory is like. Catherine of Genoa once described it, much better off than we are those who abide totally in the love of God 
There's no joy except the joy of the souls in heaven, greater than the joy of the souls in purgatory. And the joy increases every day. God more and more flows into the soul as every hindrance to God is slowly stripped away. The hindrance is the rust of sin. The fire consumes the rust and the holy soul abandons itself more to God and the sooner the life of the blessed enters into the, they enter into the heavenly kingdom. Okay? Another uh, analogy I can think of for purgatory, have you ever hurt a friend and only found out later just how badly you hurt them? You didn't know. Now how bad do you feel? Much worse. Uh, do you not yearn with a pain in your heart to want to make it better? It's an analogy. Okay, I, I don't, I didn't, I realized I was schlepping through it. I didn't realize how bad this was. I want to make it better. What can I do to help? Such is the experience of the pain of the soul in purgatory. It is a suffering, okay? It is a suffering, but um, uh, it's, it's the, it, it's, and it, it's exactly what the soul needs, okay? Um, there's a little tiny side note here, and there's a certain dignity in allowing us to, to help do this, like a, a boy who broke the window of a rich lady's house and he couldn't pay it. He wishes he could pay it, but he can't pay it. The lady lets him mow the lawn, the lady lets him rake leaves. It doesn't earn anything like near enough to pay for the broken window. But she respects his dignity, right? He respects the fact that he wants to make restitution. Something like that's happening. God's grace is entering into the souls of all those in purgatory more and more and more and more. It's all grace, okay? Um, but there is an undoing of sin, okay? Our, our prayers can help them. That's why we pray for the deceased. Um, um, please don't ever assume your deceased loved ones go straight to heaven. I know you want to, but please don't. I want to make this very clear. If I die, I want people to assume that I'm in the last row of the cleanup crew in purgatory because I want your prayers. I hope I make it. I hope I go straight to heaven, right? Um, but, uh, but please offer your deceased loved ones the benefit of the doubt and offer prayers for them. We can still merit grace. They can't. They've, they've made their decision, right? Um, turning your life over to Christ is not an instantaneous event, is it? You, you can have a deep movement of faith. You can have a deep experience of grace. But it's a process, Heck, the scriptures themselves describe it as a, it's the sowing of the seed, it's the rising of the loaf, it's the growth of the bush or the growth of the tree. A lifelong process of conversion. Breaking free from the clutches of unbelief, breaking free from the clutches of sin. All I'm saying is that for some people that process isn't over at the end of their life. And if you're alive with God's grace, um, thanks be to God, there is, there, there, there is this experience of finishing the job. And that's purgatory, okay?